We're going to go to Gary for a case. Can you present your case? Yeah, in this case, actually, I can probably use some advice. It's a little bit of several-year history. 77-year-old widowed mother of six children with a pretty benign history. Previously had a goiter and non-insulin-dependent diabetes. She was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 2004. She had a six-centimeter left breast mass with skin involvement. Mastectomy showed a three-centimeter infiltrating ductal carcinoma triple negative. More than 20 lymph nodes, however, were positive at the time of her axillary dissection. And there was extensive dermal and dermal lymphatic invasion present. A CT body scan was negative, but a PET CT revealed extensive metastatic disease in the anterior and superior mediastinum and the base of the left neck, presumably in lymph nodes. And I've been criticized for doing PET scans, but in this case, it made a significant difference, I thought, because the radiation therapist was going to change her field and probably gave it a little more extensively than she would have otherwise. And the PET result probably is not terribly surprising. In any event, she was treated with dose-dense AC followed by T, and her chemotherapy was complicated by one episode of shingles. Post-operative radiation therapy was given. She so developed she had mar- a mastectomy, you said? Yeah, she had a left mastectomy. Okay. And I'm sorry, what lymph nodes were you suspicious of? Anterior mediastinum, where else? The PET scan showed a lot of lymph nodes, and I actually sent Neil the picture. I presented her three years ago when I came to one of these conferences, and I don't think it got presented, but maybe you can look at it and comment on the lymph nodes. I'll find it. There was a lot of lymph nodes up in the anterior and posterior mediastinum and kind of the base of the neck. I have the follow-up PET scan, too. After the chemo and the radiation, the PET scan went back to normal. It was very dramatic pictures. In any event, she had lymphedema and has had occasional cellulitis in the left arm. Two years later, in November 2006, now two years ago, she had axillary recurrence, was biopsied again, triple negative. I gave her nabpaclitaxel and bevacizumab at the time, and her disease seemed to stabilize somewhat, but she progressed within a short time and had ulcerated Draining lesions, kind of our you know worst nightmare, local recurrence. And her radiation oncologist said, let me try more radiation. And I didn't think it would work. But in any event, I gave her capecitabine along with the radiation, and she had a dramatically good response. The ulcers healed. And she did all right, at least temporarily. After about 10 months, she progressed with inflammatory changes over the whole left chest wall, tumor and caress, I guess as they call it, on the arm and front and the back of the chest, flat, kind of very pruritic to her, extensive area of tumor involvement, reddened. And so we've had to treat her again, and she's been sequentially on capecitabine, phenorelban, and gemcitabine, and I have her during those things also on bevacizumab. And her disease seems to have stabilized. It's not progressing. Fortunately, the ulcers never came back. And a recent CT scan of her chest, abdomen, and pelvis is unremarkable for any distant disease. So you haven't had any trouble getting it paid for, the BEV, the insurance companies, actually? No, even when I used it two or three years ago when it was just talked about at Kathy Miller's presentation and Medicare, I guess, wasn't looking at it. They just paid for it. So I was lucky, I guess. And lately, I've not had trouble. Cliff, we were talking about the issue of continuation of biologics, continuation of trastuzumab in the German study. What are your thoughts about the issue of continuation of bevacizumab? 
There's been a lot of discussion on this in colon cancer because of Axel Grothy's Bright Tumor Registry study that's been published recently. And we've seen a big shift in what people are doing in their practice in terms of colon cancer. Now there's a trial looking at this. What do you think about that concept that's sort of being implemented here? Again, I wouldn't do it. I think that the benefits of BEV, as far as we can measure them right now, are smaller than the benefits of trastuzumab. We don't have a survival difference in any study with it. And I think that it's really appropriate to give it for one line of therapy and then stop. I'm not arguing that this is wrong. I know in practice we have to do a lot of things, but I personally don't do this. Sandy, what are your thoughts, particularly in a patient who's maybe had a long response to chemo and BEV, and then the BEVs continued and they get out, you know, a while in that kind of a situation? Well, I think if they've had a long response, I mean, as Cliff said, in practice you do a lot of things that aren't, necessarily based on randomized data, it would be reasonable. I think in this situation where you have multiple treatments with probably short-term responses, I wouldn't do it, and I would agree with Cliff. I'd go with the data. I usually use it the first time, the first recurrence, or actually I had a patient who had three different cancers over her lifetime, and it wasn't her first recurrence, and we recommended it, and she did really well. So if they haven't had BEV before, I've also used it. But in a situation, I don't usually continue it. For example, in her, I would have stopped it and probably, since I like ixabipolone, would have given her single-agent ixabipolone at one time. Well, that'll be the next plan. I had heard somebody speak once saying that BEV was good not only for pleural and peritoneal effusions, but for chest wall disease for some reason. Yeah, that's what I, 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 I heard the same thing. I was thinking that that's why Kathy flashed into my mind, but I don't know. Is that the case? I think it's a theoretical I, I don't know of that. I did a trial in inflammatory breast cancer in which we used bevacizumab with chemotherapy, and we still had a lot of recurrences on the chest wall, so I don't think that's valid, actually. I mean, this patient is like, what, she must be 81 years old now. This is palliative care. I mean, why don't you give her oral She's 77 now, actually. Give her oral cyclophosphamide and, you know, and see how she does with that. Metronomic chemotherapy. All right, ask Dr. Hurtis about metronomic therapy. I asked him at lunch. He nearly bit my head off, but tell him what you said. <laughs> well, first of all, every chemo you've ever given is metronomic. Tick, tock, tick, tock. That's all it is. So it's a silly term, with all due respect to the people involved. Secondly, you're really just talking about palliative chemotherapy. I couldn't agree with you more. So if you have an oral regimen, it's reasonable for her, any drug she hasn't. I think ixabepilin makes good sense for her, though, because it's an active drug she hasn't seen reasonably well tolerated. I mean, I think it, to me, it's kind of all the same dealer's choice. On a bigger economic scale, we, with these drugs getting ever more expensive, in a global sense, we have to think about what we're doing too, because the costs are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. To put somebody on these drugs for years is, you know, and there are so many women with breast cancer, you're talking about a huge medical bill without data. She's done well, but you know, you have to start, we have to all start collectively thinking in the global sense about cost. And she may have done well just with the chemotherapy itself. Maybe, and this is a terrible problem for her. And I actually heard one of Dr. Love's speakers say, you know, we're not the economist. We're not here to decide on the best economic plan. We're to decide on what's best for the patient. And But I disagree with that. To your point, if we ignore it, then we're not going to have anything for these patients. So I think we need to take a global view and we really need to do the right thing because then that 
benefits all patients, not just that one that's well, sitting right we, in front of you. And we do it by actually academically and with community <laughs> practitioners looking at evidence and writing guidelines. And that's our best defense. Well, and the other the thing is, if is, we don't do it for ourselves, the government will do right. it for that's us. Right. And we'll, and, be far more, and we'll be far more <laughs> frustrated that way. Yeah. I think what we've tried to focus on is, you know, kind of the clinical science and what we know about risk benefits, and then we can bring in the cost issue. But it really is so dominant. I mean, when you stop and think about it, you know, how would you be looking at this if bevacizumab, you know, were generic or, you know, extremely inexpensive, and you just looked at the risk-benefit issues in this situation? It would look very, very different. That doesn't mean we should be making decisions differently. It's just a question of maybe being clear about why we're making these decisions. Can I ask an insurance question? I had a patient who had her first metastasis before bevacizumab was available. And when it was available, and she was doing very well and then relapsed, I tried to put her on Taxol and bevacizumab, and the insurance company refused because it wasn't her first recurrence. Have people run into that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, this they actually changed their minds on it. Um, you can usually talk them into it because right. I had a patient had like that, that who it was the same kind of scenario. And usually if you talk to them, they can talk them into 